0: center ourselves. Amen. This morning we're continuing our journey through the uh, lectionary in this series and the lectionary uh, for the day comes from the middle of the book of Jonah. Jonah is a book that uh, that many of you heard when you were children, if you went to church as a child. And, uh, and if you remember anything, you remember that it's a story about a runaway prophet who gets swallowed up by a great big fish or a big whale. But the story of Jonah is much bigger than a big fish. Uh, and whether or not it actually happened in history is irrelevant and not worth arguing about tells the truth about the surprising character of God who is transforming and converting both the righteous and the unrighteous, those on the outside and those on the inside. The lectionary reading for the day comes from the middle of the book of Jonah in chapter three, and it's never a good idea to uh, take an excerpt out of the middle of a story and read it and expect anybody to understand it. Um, and so what we're going to do is expand the reading a little bit and tell the whole story of Jonah. I'll make some comments along the way. So Jonah chapter one in verse one, listen to God's word. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away away from the presence of the Lord." So Jonah's minding his own business when God tells him to go to Nineveh, I've got something for you to do, I've got a place for you to go. And Nineveh, of course, was that great city, it was the capital of uh, the kingdom, the empire of Assyria, which is Israel's largest and most threatening enemy. uh, Nineveh is, is uh, the last place that Jonah would want to go. It appeared to be a strong city, but it was morally weak in decadent. So I just want to pause for a moment um, to draw out the reality that each and every one of us has a Nineveh in our personal life. Nineveh represents what's wrong with the world, what's wrong out there uh, to each of us. It's the name of whatever it is that makes you afraid, whatever is mean, whatever is cruel, and whoever it is that has harmed you. Nineveh may not be a great nation. It might be a single person. Nineveh is your enemy, and it is the place that you would just prefer God would go ahead and destroy. But God has chosen to offer mercy to the enemy and that's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh. That's his nature and as confounding as that is, what's even harder to accept is the calling to be the agent uh, of God's mercy to the enemy. We'll get to, I think we already did that reading. Um, So notice that Jonah doesn't argue about his calling. He simply tries to avoid it. He just doesn't want to listen. Uh, so he runs away, and he books a passage on a ship that was sailing to Tarshish, which is a long way from Nineveh. Tarshish was an ancient, idealized port city, kind of like an ancient Shangri-La. When King Solomon was building his temple, he sent his fleet of ships, Tarshish, to collect gold, silver, ivory, and peacocks. We always prefer Tarshish over Nineveh. We don't want to offer mercy to the enemy. We would much rather hang around with peacocks. In fact, many of us spend our entire lives to build a kind of a peacock lifestyle so that we could avoid having to go to Nineveh when God calls us. But sooner or later, the call of God always involves being led to a place that you would rather not go. It's interesting that archaeologists actually have never been able to locate Tarshish. They can't confirm its actual existence, which is an interesting metaphor. While Nineveh is a very, very real city, Tarshish might as well be a figment of our imagination anyway. The grass is always greener in a place that doesn't really exist. So as you read on in the story, in this boat, um, a massive storm comes, which is clearly the result of Jonah's disobedience. No matter how intent he is on running away from the presence of God, he simply cannot escape it. And so this storm comes, it's clear that this is Jonah's problem, and even the sailors know it, the crew on the, on the ship, but they don't want to throw Jonah overboard. Eventually, Jonah realizes that he has no choice but to accept God's calling, God's reality, God's inescapable presence, and so he asks the sailors to throw him overboard into the churning sea. Sometimes that's what it feels like to surrender to your calling, uh, to go to the place that God uh, wants you to go that you'd rather not go. It feels like being thrown into a churning sea. You don't know where you're going. You don't know where you're headed. You don't know where this will lead. You don't know how you will survive or if. You just know it's the only option. In the next chapter, we read that Jonah was swallowed up by this great fish, and he stayed in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And it is in that place that he was stripped of everything, all of his attachments, and the only thing he was left to do was to pray and surrender. He doesn't surrender completely. He sort of surrenders just enough to go to Nineveh. And so we pick up the story in chapter 3, and this is our lectionary reading for the morning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city. A three days walk across, Jonah began to go into the city, going one day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more, Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Notice they didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. That is, they participated in their death ritual. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind. God changed his mind about the calamity he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. It's interesting that according to the text, Jonah hardly made it a third of the way into the city before he completes the bare minimum of his assignment. Uh, He would have been a terrible missionary. He doesn't build any relationships first, he doesn't get to know the people, he doesn't get a job and contribute to the economy or anything like that. Uh, Nor was he exactly a model of well-crafted, thoughtful, passionate preaching. His sermon was terrible. It was five words long, no illustrations, no good news, no gospel, just 40 days, Nineveh, you're going to be destroyed. That's it. And the people, and it said that the people believed God, and over 120,000 of them turned towards God in a moment's time. These are like Billy Graham numbers we're talking here. And all to Jonah's dismay. And so God uh, was so delighted about their return home that a text says that God changed his mind about the calamity. I love that. If, If you're wondering if your prayers make a difference, this is one of those texts to keep you on your knees. Your prayers move God. God is moved by our intercession. He's moved by our repentance. He's moved by our turning toward him. As the Ninevites turn to God, God turns to them. And here we learn something very significant about the character of God. When having to choose between judgment and mercy, it is always God's preference to choose mercy. That's where God is always leading. But Jonah would have none of it. And so listen to the opening of chapter 4. It's as though Jonah experienced the beginning of transformation, but not the completion of the journey. This was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you weren't going to destroy them. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Really? 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 Are you, you're, is it really right for you to be angry about my mercy towards 120,000 people who have turned back to me? Then Jonah went out of the city and he sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Couldn't even stay in the, in the darn place. He sat under it under a shade under the shade waiting to see what would become of the city. Then God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah should spend some time in the wilderness. But God said to Jonah, really? Is it, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? Like, are you entitled to good weather? Is this all about you here, Jonah? Jonah? And he says, yes, I'm angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, look, you're concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also many animals? I love that he includes the animals in that too. The fourth chapter of the story of Jonah depicts Jonah's anger as he cries out to God. This is why I fled Tarshish. It's exactly what I was worried about. I knew you were a God of mercy. I knew you were a God of love. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. If this is the way you're going to treat me, just kill me and get it over with. What? Okay. Okay. Jonah doesn't know how to differentiate from his enemy. Jonah had a core conviction that has clearly been destroyed by God. He was certain, his conviction, he was certain that the world was divided into two groups, the righteous and the unrighteous places. And that the unrighteous places and peoples would be judged staying righteous for Jonah boy that's a whole lot of hard work you know being as righteous as Jonah but at least you get to watch God clobber the sinners but no not anymore this is why he didn't want to go to Nineveh to uh, to see Nineveh repent he wanted God to destroy it just as we do but God has his own core conviction and among those is an eagerness to redeem, to show mercy, to bring home again. You see, there are two primary concerns that God has in this text. The first concern is for the 120,000 people in Nineveh. They're so confused, the text, notice how the text ends, they don't even know their right hand from their left. And the last line is even their animals are confused. And why are they confused? Well, they don't know the the difference between right and wrong. They have become so corrupt. Think about the Nazi regime. Think about the apartheid regime. Think about these forces of, of destruction and injustice. Why are they so wicked? Why don't they know their difference between right and wrong? Because they had turned away from God. What they need is to return their hearts back to God again. God is concerned about them. He's concerned about their hearts, and their behavior is simply the result of their heart. He's counted them, and he wants them back. The word translated for concern in the Hebrew is the word "hus," And when you put it next to the word for I in Hebrew, it means to well up with tears. And so it's as though God is asking Jonah, should I not weep? Should I not cry over those who are lost? And should I not weep with delight upon their return? That's what God's concerned about. The other concern is about Jonah. It's not really a story about the Ninevites. It's really a story about Jonah, religious people like you and me. It's about God's intent on converting the religious This is what Jesus is constantly struggling to do, to convert religious people to become gospel people, to become uh, people of love and good news, driven by grace rather than adherence to rules. I'm sure that you're familiar with one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Maybe you've seen the musical in film or in person, the extraordinary story of Jean Valjean, who was sentenced to five years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. But not just any prison, he was sentenced to the galleys. And he ended up, uh, you know, trying to escape multiple times, and so he served 19 years in the galleys. When he was finally released, on his citizenship papers, it was noted that he was an ex-convict, So uh, upon parole, he was never able to find a job. And he becomes uh, starving to death, living on the street. And a bishop takes pity on him and takes him in, brings him into the home, feeds him, takes care of him. In the middle of the night, Valjean takes that wonderful gift the bishop gave him, and squanders it. He sneaks out of the house, stealing the bishop's silver. Then he gets caught by the police, and they bring him back to the bishop, expecting um, recompense and expecting to return him back to prison. But the bishop says to the police, "No, I gave him that silver, and and you forgot the candlesticks too." Valjean is overwhelmed by this mercy that he has been given, this grace of the bishop. But the police inspector is Javert, and in the film, that's played appropriately by Russell Crowe. Javert uh, begins in life in a very humble experience. But he works so hard and he follows the law and he becomes committed to the law. And through the law, Javert is able to rise to the level of influence and strength. And he is so upset with Valjean that he's out there free roaming around this criminal who hasn't been punished enough. And he's determined to find him and to punish him. He's going to hunt him down. He becomes obsessed with the fact that this guy has broken the law, and so the whole musical is about Javert's obsession with the law and with Valjean, this lawbreaker. Well, they have a happenstance meeting. It's the Revolutionary War, and Valjean is with the revolutionaries, and they capture Javert, the police inspector. And the revolutionaries, of course, they want to kill Javert, Valjean says, I'll do it. And Valjean takes him into the other room. He points the gun at Javert, who's been hunting him down, who's been making his life miserable for years. And then he raises the gun into the sky and shoots into the air and tells Javert to run away. And so Javert does. But receiving the grace, this mercy... From Valjean absolutely destroys Javert. He can't handle it. It tortures him. Later in the story he captures Valjean again and basically just lets him go. And Javert walks away and he walks to the Seine River and throws himself in. He takes his own life because he can't handle a world that is pierced with mercy and grace. A world where he cannot feel in control grace is subversive in a world where you get what you deserve and grace actually exposes the immorality of a strict adherence to the law we think that obeying the law is the most moral thing you can do but the best thing that the law can do is reveal our inadequacies the law doesn't save you the law will never save you. Jonah is, like Javert, concerned about rules. Obey the rules. Now, rules are good. I'm a Presbyterian. I like rules. We have a whole book of rules. It's called the Book of Order. It keeps things in line, you know? We have, we have kids. we got to give rules in order to keep the house in order and to provide that kind of hedge of protection. Um and, and rules provide for Jonah a very clear-cut binary world. But the rules will not save you. This notion of God intervening, it pulls the rug from underneath him. He can't handle it. You notice how in the fourth chapter, God plays with Jonah on, on this bush thing. He's distressed and upset because it's hot. And he gets a little shade and he's happy and And then he pulls back the shade, and a little worm comes and kills the plant. It's almost as if God is toying with them, saying, Do you realize that you're actually not in control of all these things? I am, not you. I gave you the plant. I can take it away. I'm in control of the plant. You might as well just give it up. And so the illusion of control needs to get brought down into the belly of the whale before we can truly be free. That's the problem with following rules all the time, building your life on them. You think you're in control because look at what a good job I've done building my own life. Jewish mystics teach that Jonah is a metaphor for the soul. And the story of Jonah is the story of our spiritual journey here on earth. It's why Jonah is read in Jewish communities on Yom Kippur every year in its entirety. We are called, like Jonah, down into this earth uh, to occupy a finite vessel of our bodies and, and to go on a journey and on that path, we often try to flee from the presence of the Lord. But then we must go down to the depths of despair discouragement and hopelessness before we relent before we can surrender to god and rise up and meet our spirit with god's spirit jonah wasn't completely transformed but enough to continue the journey you know in fact even the hebrew language is so rich in helping us to see this descent This path of descent as Jonah goes down, down, down. The word for down in Hebrew is the word yarad. And we see it here in the text. First, Jonah goes down to Joppa. After obtaining passage away from Nineveh, he goes down to the ship. Once on board, then he goes down into the hold of the ship, falling into a deep sleep. Lastly, he gets thrown over sea and he goes down to the bottom of the mountains of a violent sea. And there at the bottom of the earth, Jonah gave up finally, gave up resisting, found the mercy of God again, and was spit out with a renewed sense of calling. This is precisely why in Matthew and in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is asked to give us a sign he says, only a wicked generation asks for a sign. They were asking for a miracle. Show us something spectacular to prove to us that you're a God. But Jesus already resisted that temptation in the wilderness when the tempter said, jump off the top of the temple and the angels will lift you up and you can show everybody that you're divine. Jesus said, only a wicked in a generation asks for a sign. There is one sign I will give you. It is the sign of Jonah. The sign of this runaway prophet who will go down into the belly of a whale before being spit up anew. This is the pattern of transformation that Jesus was teaching. And of course, it was Jesus that showed us the way. Who goes onto a cross and dies on a cross and goes down into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights before being risen to new life not so that we wouldn't have to but so that we could have the courage to follow his pattern of death and resurrection then and only then will we be spit out anew on the shore and understand our calling our place and our purpose this this pattern this is what paul was writing about when he talked about when he wrote about the reproducing pattern of jesus death I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. How? By sharing in his suffering and by becoming like him in his death if I might attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul is saying, I I recognize that I need to go into the belly of the earth, into the belly of the whale too, so that I can rise on the shores of new life. Unless we have gone down, we don't know what up is unless we descend we won't long for and make inner space for ascent this is the pattern of transformation and it's mystery it's not rational or logical just like the grace of god it doesn't make sense in a world of performance and climbing but it's the only way there's always more about god than we know There's always more of the Savior for us to receive, and there's always more of God's transforming experiences of grace for us to inherit. And so the invitation for us from this text is that our heart would be soft enough to rejoice in the wideness of God's mercy, first for us, and then for those who may be considered our enemies And that we might find ourselves at the depths, when we do, that we would meet God there again and say yes to his call on our lives. God, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that uh, that first and foremost we see ourselves as the Ninevites in this text, in great need of returning to you, in great need of your mercy. And we thank you that you sent prophets from Israel to show, to speak to us. And we recognize that, uh, that in many ways we're also like Jonah. We we'd prefer to run away. We, we, we like the benefits of salvation, but we don't so much like the cost. But help us to know that in, unless we truly experience the depths of despair we can't even pretend to know the goodness of your mercy and grace so give us courage to go wherever you lead us that we might find you there in the dark and proclaim your good news even in those places in jesus name